and welcome to What Were You Thinking? I'm Laura Round and I am joined by Craig Oliver, former Director of Communications and Politics for David Cameron in Number 10. He tells me about dealing with a political press pack, especially when travelling with them, which ministers kept him up at night the most, and his experiences with both the Scottish independence referendum and the EU referendum. He also shares a staggering anecdote about David Beckham, which is not to be missed. This episode is supported by Ajivo, a UK-based syndicate whose members are experienced business people and leaders in their chosen fields. Their aim is to support British startups with early-stage funding and mentor the next generation of entrepreneurs. They take an active interest in developing commercial trends and current affairs. And on December the 9th, they have an event with the Big Tent on vaccines, testing and mental health with Jeremy Hunt. You can register on bigtent.org.uk. And this series is in partnership with the Big Tent Ideas Festival. You can become a friend of the Big Tent and receive the first three months completely free by entering the coupon code PODCAST. Friends benefit from invitations to exclusive intimate events with politicians and leaders and much, much more. Visit bigtent.org.uk for further details and to join. Thank you so much for joining, Craig. Just to start off, could you give us a bit of an understanding as to how you ended up in number 10? What was your route into it? It was really completely out of the blue. Um, Andy Coulson had left Downing Street and they were looking for a new director of communications. And out of the blue, really, I got a phone call saying, would you like to come in and meet Ed Llewellyn, who was the chief of staff, George Osborne, the chancellor, and then David Cameron, the prime minister. And I went through a succession of slightly secret meetings um, to go in and see whether or not I would be suitable for the job. I remember meeting Ed Llewellyn in a Starbucks on Oxford Street where we thought nobody would see us then going to see George at his home and then driving to Chequers to see David Cameron on a Sunday. Uh, And I was asked a few questions and then it went quiet for a few days. Uh, And then they said, would you like to come in? So it really was completely out of the blue. I think the reason they'd chosen me was because I'd been a journalist for a long time. I'd been in broadcast media and I think that they felt that they wanted somebody who could do broadcast media and digital. I'd edited the six and 10 o'clock news and was running BBC Global at the time. Um, So I hadn't really got a track record and it was just a question out of the blue in January 2011. So you hadn't had much exposure then directly to Westminster before taking that role, Is is that right? Well, the exposure I'd had had been as a journalist. So I'd done things like edit the BBC election programmes, which is this vast um, operation with hundreds of outside broadcasts. And obviously, you need to know a lot about politics in order to do that. I've covered a lot of politics, obviously, editing the six and 10 o'clock news. Um, But I hadn't actually worked in Westminster at all. So it was completely new to me. And I think that the thing that was really strange about it was the way I describe it is like being thrown into the whitewater rapids. You're sort of sitting quite happily by the riverbanks. And it's almost like you're being grabbed and thrown into the whitewater rapids. Nothing can prepare you for quite how tumultuous the opening is. I joined a government that was already going and a team that was already working together. And I'd never done a job like that before. So it really was incredibly rough and tumble. I was expected to be able to be across things and on top of things from moment one. I remember on my first day, I was told if I stood on the corner of Downing Street, somebody would come and get me and I'd get into the convoy and we'd be driven off to a visit we were doing. And I was standing there and they told me, look, make sure you just stand there, don't move, somebody will get you, it's all sorted. 
And I was like watching the convoy to get together and it racing out of the gates of Downing Street and past me and being left on my own. And then having to work out how on earth I was going to catch up with this prime ministerial convoy. And I really did feel quite on my own at first. Um, politics is a very strange environment. Most other environments have a, a human resources department or an onboarding program. When you're going into number 10, it's literally you're thrown in at the deep end and you either th- sink or swim. So tell me a bit more, you know, what is it like? Give us a bit of a glimpse inside. So, I mean, you've, you've given up already. It's clearly sink or swim and it's a highly pressured environment. Can you give us a bit of an indication about your, you know, day to day? Well, the first experience of it is really a little frightening, a little chilling. You suddenly realise that politics is quite a brutal and bloody game. There are a lot of people who'd quite like to see you fail in their job. Sometimes they feel is to trip you up and cause you issues and problems. At first, you're just not used to that. You're not used to seeing your name in the newspaper or somebody criticising you in a newspaper or somebody you feel is being very unfair to you. And quite quickly, I thought I had a thick skin before I went into politics. You have to develop a complete rhinoceros hide because it is incredibly rough and tumble. And you realise quite quickly that it's not personal. And you also realise that it's your job sometimes to be in the firing line and take bullets for the prime minister. And you can either cope with that and deal with that or you can't. Uh, You realise that when you go into politics, um, particularly in number 10, that there's quite a few people who've been brought in from the outside before and they've really struggled. Some of them I talked about being in the Whitewater Rapids, some of them bash their heads on the rock and drown and never to be heard of again. And that's quite chilling when you sort of realise that. But eventually you orientate yourself, eventually you work out how to do it, what you're there to do. Uh, and you get on with it. One of the things that I was told very, very clearly at the beginning was that they wanted to modernise communications in number 10. They wanted it to be able to do broadcast and digital. And you realise actually that, that politics was sort of operating around 1978, actually, in terms of the way that a lot of things were done. They used to have midnight embargoes for absolutely everything, which was designed to work for the press, um, that it was really, really based around the lobby system. And come in and saying we're maybe going to do things a little differently now we're going to have a prime minister that is prepared to use digital media we are going to think about how we do broadcast a bit more that ruffled quite a few feathers and people found it quite difficult Um, but I realized it was a job that I was asked to do and you just have to get on with it. So what were the biggest changes uh, that you sort of implemented in your time from from a, a press perspective? I think the biggest thing was that we were really on the frontier of the digital age then. If you think back to 2011, social media had obviously really started to take hold, but not hugely in politics. So making sure that we were fit for purpose in the digital age was a really big thing. We Getting David Cameron onto Twitter uh, was quite a big moment. The most... Um, The biggest thing he'd ever said about social media before that point was too many tweets make a twat. And he'd actually, um, somebody complained to Ofcom. I mean, there is some truth in that. There is quite a lot of truth in that (laughs) one. There's quite a lot of narcissism in Twitter. But um, somebody complained to Ofcom about it. And um, they'd said that, did he not realise that in the north of England that this was actually, how shall I put it, a gynaecological term. And David Cameron, being a southerner, had not realised that. And there was an Ofcom investigation and they decided at the end of it that they were satisfied that the Prime Minister had not meant to use it as a gynaecological term. (laughs) Oh, dear, dear. Yeah, so that, that is quite the shift. I'm trying to sort of imagine what it's like before 
Twitter and social media. I mean, it's, it sounds it seems you know, imagine it to be rather blissful actually, but um, in many ways. But well, yes and no. I, I mean, a lot of it was set up really in a kind of. Um, almost Faustian pacts, I think, sometimes between journalism and uh, politics. And actually, there was a lot of sort of bargaining went on. A lot of things were set up to make sure that they worked for certain journalists and not others. So it was quite, you know, it was quite a, a strange and tricky situation. And still today, we're only just in a situation where this government is actually going to have daily on TV press briefings, that Westminster really has been in the dark on a lot of these things for a long time. So coming in and trying to change it didn't necessarily satisfy a lot of people. And some newspapers, I remember like being on a plane to the G20 summit in Mexico, and there was a major row about the fact that there was an embargo for a story that was going to be 12 hours hence. And I remember getting the lobby around the Virgin Bar on, on the plane that we were flying out to Mexico on and having a debate with them about whether or not we should shift the embargo. And half of the lobby thought we did because they had digital operations and wanted it to be ready for their website as soon as possible. And half didn't because they were very print focused. And I think that shifted dramatically. And it's been fascinating to see how the digital side of things has taken hold and changed the way journalism has done, but also massively speeded up politics. That was the thing, the sense that the next deadline was not the top of the next hour when there was a 24-hour news station or the next morning's newspapers, but the next deadline was actually the amount of time it took somebody to type a tweet. What is it like travelling with the press lobby on a, on an you know being stuck on an airplane for example there must have been moments where you know you plenty of moments where you'd rather not have journalists in close proximity when there are I imagine like tricky situations that you find yourself in quite regularly is was that ever an issue or how does that how does that work it's it's a fantastically strange thing getting on a plane with a press pack and there's a lot of um things that happen where you you know it's expected that the prime minister will go up to the back of the plane and brief the journalists and it's often that those are the times where things go wrong in terms of dealing with the lobby i remember one story where david cameron that morning had well, we were going on a trip to liberia algeria and libya and that morning, the Daily Telegraph had splashed on a front page claiming that he was going to cut the SAS. Now, there's one thing a Conservative Prime Minister will never do, and that is cut special forces. And it had really got under his skin because he was having endless backbench MPs texting him and saying, what the hell are you doing? The military ringing him up saying, why are you cutting the SAS? And he was like, I'm not. This story is complete rubbish. And I, for somebody who had such equanimity, it was really interesting to see that this had really got under his skin. We got on the plane and we were just taken off and we were going to go back to the back of the plane and talk to the journalists. And I remember saying to him, now, look, I've sorted this. I've persuaded everybody it's not a story. Anything you say on it will just throw fuel on the fire. So just stick to the lines we've got. And I could see as we walked to the back of the plane that he was still quite wound up. And we got to the press pack and they were crowded in the aisle. And the first person he saw was a Daily Telegraph journalist. And he looked him straight in the eye and said, Oh, great, great story this morning. Uh, it's saying that we're going to cut the SAS. What you also forgot is I'm also going to cut trooping in the colour and get rid of the red arrows too. And then he turned on his heel and walked back to the front of the plane. 
And I thought, right, and oh, turned, on my heel, turned on my heel and faced the press back and said, for the avoidance of doubt, the Prime Minister was using irony to make the point that the SAS story was not true this morning. They had written down that he'd said it. And on the trip, we were doing some incredibly serious things, but they kept hinting that they were going to run the story. And I said, you cannot run this story. You know it's not true. You know it's a joke. It's, it is not true. We were just landing, having finished the trip. And I remember looking at my BlackBerry. It came alive as we came into airspace and it could start picking up the signal again. And the first thing that popped up on my BlackBerry was the front page of that, um, that day's Daily Mirror, which was Cameron's plan to axe the, the, axe the red arrows. And I remember I'm buckling my seatbelt and starting to walk to the back of the plane to find the journalist and say, what the hell have you done? You know this story's not true. I phoned his editor when we got to the ground and said, you know this story's not true. What on earth are you doing printing it? I'm, going, I'm demanding a correction. And the editor said to me, look, let me deal with it. I'll deal with it in tomorrow's paper. And I woke up the next morning, got a hard copy of the mirror, and I flipped through it. Page one, two, three, nothing. Seven, eight, nine, ten, nothing. 21, 22, 23, nothing. Finally got to page 27. And the page lead of the of the mirror that day was victory for the mirror's campaign to save the red arrows. And oh, I think that that was really an extraordinary God. example of quite how disingenuous the media could be. Yeah. And also what goes on on foreign trips sometimes when you're on the plane with journalists. Yeah. So do you think this uh, introduction of a daily or, you know, however often this new briefing is going to be with the Prime Minister's spokesperson will help sort of counter that kind of stuff like it's it's more transparent as to what's what's being briefed or I, I do like the idea that it's transparent and on the record and I think there's something grown up about that and good about that I think there's a possibility that the government may um, pat itself on the back in the first couple of weeks of it but then sort of repent at leisure and the reason for that is that often when you look at systems that you kind of think, well, there could be a better way of doing that. There's sometimes a reason for why they are that way. And what the lobby system at the moment does is it allows a kind of wiggle room for journalists and the government. They can, you know, correct themselves, they can go back. But when you've got somebody who's on camera, who has clearly said something, that is there and it can be played endlessly. And I think that what's going to be interesting is when there is a running story where there are not easy and obvious answers that is a difficulty for the government, it will be incredibly hard for them because they will obviously have to use blocking techniques or obfuscation or not be clearly not answering the question. And I suspect in those circumstances, a lot of people will think, well, what's going on here and find it difficult. So I also think for the person who does it, Allegra Stratton, she's probably as good a person as you could choose. But there are going to be times where it's just incredibly tricky and incredibly difficult. So I, I sort of, on the one hand, think it's a great innovation. And on the other hand, think that the government may um, feel that they've made a bit of a mistake in a few months' time. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely risky. High risk. High risk, yeah. So I'd love to um, ask a question that I ask every guest, my um my, my, my three questions and I'd love to start with a place to just find a find out whether there is a location or a place that you visited or lived or whatever that you think has um, really impacted your your thinking and and possibly politics 
So I'm going to choose Glasgow. My first job um, when I left university was as a uh, working at uh, Scottish Television in Glasgow, and I was in the newsroom there. Um, and paid an absolute pittance. But what was fascinating about it was that I got to do quite interesting and exciting things very quickly. And one of the things I had to do was sometimes produce for a woman called Fiona Ross, who was the political editor of Scottish television. I remember occasionally thinking, Paul, you seem to be very labour in your approach. And I wasn't particularly political then at all, but I remember thinking, the, the establishment in Scotland is Labour. I think they had 50 out of 70 odd seats then. And nobody could really imagine a time where they wouldn't end they have anything other than an iron grip on politics there. And it felt to me that the political editor of Scottish television really felt a bit too close to the government uh, or the Labour Party then. Um, and I thought one day that uh, I remember very clearly was that there was a Conservative MP who'd come up to Scotland and said that there was a constituency um, where it seemed clear that the council was giving jobs to Labour supporters and actually Catholic Labour supporters. And I remember going along and covering the story. And at the end of the day, I'm not exaggerating too much, but Fiona's script was basically this lackey of the Conservative establishment dares to come up to Scotland. He's not even fit to lick the boots of the Scottish working classes and he accuses us of corruption. And I remember thinking, gosh, this is a bit strong. This is a bit weird. He seems to be raising some questions that are at least worth talking about. Um, and the report was about why this was all rubbish and how dare this guy. And a few weeks later, it turned out that everything he said was pretty much true. And there really had been corruption going on there. And I remember thinking very clearly what happens where the establishment in terms of politics is supported by the establishment of um, journalism too, and how that can actually be quite a dodgy thing that happens and a real problem. And that wasn't something that a journalist should do. And it certainly wasn't something that a politician should really be encouraging. It creates a kind of tribal atmosphere. It creates an environment where the truth sometimes can't be questioned or people feel afraid for raising it because they think they're going to be crushed. And I remember thinking at that time that, you know, in terms of politics, I never really wanted to be part of that kind of politics and that actually I wanted to challenge it. And not just on the Labour side, but on the Conservative side too, if I saw it. And um, how optimistic are you that that landscape has improved? I think we've been through a very long period of time in the last decade where tribalism and politics has got stronger and stronger. And I think that you've seen, for example, in the, the 2016 EU referendum, recent elections where um, tribalism has become very clear and opponents' motives have constantly been questioned. And very often journalism, I think, particularly print journalism, has become not news journalism, but kind of campaign journalism. If you think about the front pages of the newspapers that we have at the moment, it's very rare to have the front page of a newspaper that isn't really a story that confirms the worldview and approach of that newspaper. And actually, um, 
that I think creates a dynamic where people often aren't questioning what's going on. It's doubled in its intensity by the fact that lots of people are in the echo chamber of social media where they're just having their views confirmed back at them. And I think it does create a tribal environment. And politicians at their worst, I think, play to that because it's sort of the path of least resistance. And it's something that I, I worry about. You know, issues are very complicated. They're not black and white. They're not, they're very nuanced. They're often very gray. And often there are big, complicated issues that need to be flushed out and debated properly. But people are often quite nervous about doing that because they feel they're just going to get bitten hard. I mean, the industry is under a lot of financial pressure with sales, you know, for newspapers gone down. And there's a lot more, I guess, pressure for clickbait kind of journalism and um, linking revenue with advertising. Do you think that is sort of accentuating and making this issue more prevalent? What's the route forward? Well, look, I mean, I think it's certainly true that a lot of mainstream newspapers just follow their um, worldview and agenda. And they think that that is a way of holding on to their to their readers. Um, and that bleeds over into the online coverage as well. Increasingly, it's we think of things as print and that's increasingly ridiculous because so much journalism is podcasts, vodcasts, you know, what are we doing on Twitter or Instagram or whatever. So, but but you definitely see that. I'm encouraged that there is some or quite a bit of journalism that is increasingly trying to be more balanced and approached. It's quite niche based often, but you do have certain newspapers and things that are are trying to be a bit more suggesting the world is can be quite complicated and issues are a bit more difficult. Um, the reality, I think, is as well that politicians sometimes need to just say that it's our values to point out that the world is a difficult and complicated place and sometimes things are not as clear as possible. They definitely find it very hard in an environment where there's a lot of shouting and not very much explanation. Should we bring in some Cameron? Bring in some Cameron. I mean, I have a feeling I can guess who the answer is going to be to this question, but <laughs> I'd love to know, is which which individual has really impacted your... Yeah, which which individual would you pick? Who'd impacted my politics in terms politics of... Politics um, and thinking, yeah. Um, there's, well, I'm going to pick David Cameron because before David Cameron asked me to be his director of politics and communications at number 10, I'd not really been involved in politics. And I remember when I was asked to do the job or at least talk to him about doing it, going and getting his manifesto out and reading it and thinking... I'd worked at the BBC where you really, really do try to check in any politics at the door and be impartial. Um, and so I didn't feel particularly associated with one political party or another. I'd actually voted for um, two or three different parties at various stages in my life and didn't feel really associated massively with any political political party. But I remember when I spoke to him and asked him questions and had read the manifesto, that I did feel that he was somebody who believed in sound money, was socially liberal, was prepared to do things on gay marriage, uh, that kind of thing. But also, I think, didn't want to be too ideological. And I think we, in this day and age, get very, very hung up on ideology and think that it, you, you can't be pure, you can't be true unless you have a kind of ideology. But what was interesting, I thought, about him was 
that he wanted to be pragmatic in a lot of situations. He wanted to look at the evidence of what was going on now and um, work out what the best thing to do was. I also um, thought that, that, that what was one of the most interesting lessons that he taught me was about how you could have a moderate approach to a lot of situations and that also you could wait to see where the evidence took you before you took a decision. A lot of people want to take a decision instantaneously or they look to their ideology and say, oh, well, that tells us it must be this. He, as a leader, I think, was prepared to watch and wait and see where a lot of evidence um, goes before actually taking a decision. And actually, I think that kind of approach, that kind of moderation, was something that actually created a dynamic that was very positive, allowed us to have a coalition government that worked. And I think that sometimes we it feels like we miss that kind of thing. I suppose the other person that flicks into my mind, very, very different to David Cameron, but one of the privileges that I had um, being in Downing Street was going to the memorial service of Nelson Mandela. And I remember just reading so much about him and thinking about him and thinking what an extraordinary human being he was to have been under the provocation and difficulties that he had and yet say, I am going to unify this country and create stability in this country. And what an amazing achievement that was by a human being, as I say, couldn't get more different to David Cameron, but certainly very inspirational. There's quite a lot of that you obviously went through quite very, very big, significant moments whilst working for David Cameron in number 10. Two referendums you went through, uh, which I imagine, because you, you were there during the Scottish referendum as well as obviously the EU referendum, because that's where I first met you. I was. Tell us a bit more about that, because those are really high-profile, high-pressured situations. That obviously, one went your way, the other one didn't. So I, I, on both of them, I was genuinely surprised when the decision was taken to go for them. It wasn't something um, that was that widely discussed. And then suddenly we were in meetings of, are we going to do this or not? The Scottish referendum, I quite quickly became involved in because you wouldn't get it from my accent. But my, a lot of my family in Scotland, as I said, you know, my first job was at STV. I actually went to a comprehensive school in Stirling. Um, so I know Scotland pretty well and a lot of friends and, re and relatives are still up there. I remember it being a very, very tumultuous experience. And I remember it went on for ages. There were a couple of years of it happening. And I remember going up to Scotland several times and realising quite how divisive and difficult it was. I also remember how quite how mad it was in the days running up to, to the referendum where the polls were narrowing and actually there was a danger we thought we were going to lose. And a decision was taken a couple of weeks before the referendum to put the saltire, the Scottish flag, up about Downing Street. And I don't know why, in my gut, I knew this was quite a high-risk thing. And I was absolutely explicit that this was only to be done if we had checked very, very clearly and closely that the flag that we were using was going to fit, um, that there wasn't any problems with it, um, that we didn't do it on camera, that we made sure that it was flying. And then when the cameras came into Downing Street, they could see it was there rather than the ones in the streets just filming it. 
And I was sitting at my desk and I had two um, news monitors on. One was always on Sky and one was on BBC. And I remember watching as Sky News showed live somebody putting the flag on the pole. And I remember just thinking, what on earth are we doing? This is absolutely crazy. And ringing somebody and saying, I thought we'd said that we weren't going to do this on camera. And then watching as they started to raise the flag and it got about six feet up the pole and then fell off. And in that moment, it was like the bottom was falling out of my world. I remember feeling absolutely sick. Here was an image that summed up, you know, it was like the thick of it, the worst, you know, these inept idiots at number 10 were trying to do a photo opportunity and then it all just fell apart. It was played endlessly. People were laughing about it, thinking how ridiculous we looked. But of course, we then went on and actually did okay. And then I also remember that having to fly up to, to Glasgow or, or Edinburgh, actually, with the Prime Minister, thinking that there was a good chance we were going to lose. And in the car on the way to David Cameron giving his speech, say, him saying, look, it's a complete nightmare. These people don't like the Conservative Party. They don't like me. Um, am I actually helping here? And what I sort of want to say is, I know you want to give the effing Tories a kick, but please don't break up the union because of it. And I remember saying to David Cameron, why don't you say that? And he said, well, can I say that? And I said, yeah, sure, why not? We've got to show some passion and concern. And that was a big moment where he said that. And of course, knowing that that was going to be the headline. And that night, the night of the referendum, he went to bed and he said, look, you know, I'm going to try and get some sleep. And early results started coming through. And I texted him and said, looks like it's going OK. Um, and about 30 seconds later, he was downstairs and he said he couldn't sleep at all. and He just wanted to come down and see it. And then sitting there and, and then sitting and watching the results come in and his children getting up early in the morning and sitting on his knee and cheering as the results came in. The, Scot the, the European referendum was obviously entirely different. Just hearing you talk about the Scottish referendum reminds me of the interview I did with Jack McConnell, who was first minister of Scotland for nearly seven years under, under Blair. And he, he came on, what were you thinking? And he was really interesting on sort of the way or sort of the lack of, of a very poor management of politics and communications from from Westminster towards Scotland you know when when I heard him talk about it a lot of what he said just sounded so obvious as to you know you know you should just show up more and just treat it like any other part of of the country yes conservatives are obviously quite nervous about going there because probably worried they're going to get egg thrown in their face or something is do you feel like lessons have been learned since the referendum or you know what I'm not sure in terms of Scotland that they they necessarily have done I mean I remember you know there was a period where being a conservative in Scotland was a bit like admitting to being a drink driver or you know doing something that was really socially unacceptable it was considered you know beyond the pale and the conservative party i think was down to one seat for quite a long time then ruth davidson who's a really authentic brilliant politician just came in and shook things up and then um used unionism actually as a way of you know you know boosting the conservative party in scotland and did really well um i think it's absolutely right that there is a danger that conservative politicians look like 
they're from a different country with a different value system and different approach to things. And I'm not sure at the moment that, that they, they're doing brilliantly in trying to persuade people the contrary. Um, there is a situation, I think, when the more the devolution has happened, the stronger it has got. What the SNP did that was very, very clever was that they took hold of every opportunity and every seat on everything and presented themselves completely as the government and as a separate government and as if the, you know, as if the, the Westminster government had nothing to do with them. I do have to say about Jack McConnell, what was interesting about the Scottish referendum was that a lot, some of the organisation and the money came from the Conservative Party and a lot of the... Um, how are we going to run this was handed to the Labour Party. And it became clear very, very quickly that actually that the Labour Party had become very, very um, entitled in Scotland. They had believed that it was inevitable that Scotland was always going to vote for them. And during the referendum, it became clear that there were huge council estates, large areas of towns and cities that hadn't been canvassed, in, not in years, but in decades. And they didn't know who their voters were or where they were. So there was complacency, I think, certainly from the Conservative Party to Scotland, but also the Labour Party, who after all, in a recent election, came fifth in Scotland. When I was growing up in Scotland, the idea that the Labour Party would come anything other than first um, was just nobody would believe that would ever happen. And now here they were coming fifth. So I'm just um, imagining that very pleasant, lovely moment of David Cameron being up all night watching the results come in, happy as a bunny, kids on the <laughs> on his lap, all, all honky-dory. Fast forward a few years, obviously the EU referendum played out in very differently um, and you sort of said already that you were like the first time round with Scotland why, why are we doing this why are we doing a referendum I would imagine you had similar thoughts of the EU well I think that one of the things that I spent I think probably the first three years after the referendum I, there wasn't a day where somebody didn't say to me why on earth did David Cameron hold an EU referendum it clearly was a stupid thing to do and I think that what people forget is the prime ministers don't take decisions like that unless they feel they absolutely have to. Um, EU had become a massive boulder in the road of British politics. The Conservative Party had had it at the idea that of a referendum enter its soul like a virus. Um, and it was like an extraordinary situation. You had scores of MPs voting down the government or, or um, amending legislation that was only tangentially related to Europe to make sure that their point was made. You had MPs who were um, leaving the Conservative Party to go to UKIP. Nigel Farage not only did well in the 2014 European elections, he won them. He was on the march. It was an extraordinary situation. I think people forget the extent to which there was huge pressure going on there and the demands that were going on there. Um, so I don't think David Cameron did it, um, you know, just thought, oh, I tell you what, one day I'm just going to wake up and throw the dice on my future and the Conservative Party's future and the country's future. There was real logic and reason to do that. You may disagree and you may say that he should have fought, but he would have said, well, if I don't do this, then I will be replaced as Conservative leader and the only person who becomes Conservative leader will be somebody who says they are going to have a referendum. But we can go round and round and round these arguments. I think one of the things that we 
didn't realise was that the rules had changed in politics almost without noticing. James Carville said in President Clinton's first election campaign, it's economy stupid. And that was considered a law of politics for a very, very long time. In fact, if you look back over a century, over elections in developed Western countries, um, it's almost impossible to found a campaign where the economy hadn't absolutely been the way in which people decided how they were ultimately going to vote. In 2016, there were much more cultural issues that came to play. Immigration, I have no doubt, was the number one issue of that campaign, not the economy. And it were a lot of people were persuaded that they did not like freedom of movement and the extent that which it was having an impact on the country. They felt nobody had told them that there was going to be a mass influx of people from Eastern Europe in the Blair years. Um, they were also, I think, told a lot of frankly lies about what was going to happen with Turkey. Um, they were told that Turkey will join the EU in the next couple of years and as a result of it 79 million Turks will be heading our way, which was frankly not true. There were adverts claiming that they were all going to come over and start smashing up the NHS and having a huge impact on it. And that was very, very hard to fight. Um, it was also very, very hard to fight because just to the right of them was Nigel Farage running a shadow campaign that was even more explicitly racist, having po posters that claimed that we were at breaking point because of immigration. And in fact, he doctored that poster and coloured some of the faces brown on it. And that's extraordinary when you think that that was actually going on in our country at that time. Um, so incredibly tumultuous situation where I think that the establishment realised over the weeks of the campaign that it didn't have the control over it that maybe um, it thought it did. One of the things I remember from that time was trying to avoid blue on blue as much as possible. And, you know, obviously you were looking after the referendum, but you're also still director of communications in number 10. It clearly was a bizarre time, like where you have your, you know, your own ministers, and you're sort of campaigning against your own, or some of your ministers are campaigning against the policy of number 10. Yeah, I mean, I think a view has taken hold since the referendum as well, that if only we'd allowed everybody to focus on how deeply disingenuous the leaders of the Leave campaign were, then somehow the result would have been different. Again, I think that's nonsense. I don't think people are actually thinking through what would have happened. The biggest problem that we had was that people were treating the campaign as if it were about who was going to become the next Prime Minister of the Conservative Party. And what we actually wanted them to talk about uh, was going to be, you know, what, what is the direction of this country and what impact will leaving the EU have on it? And if it was really just a straight fight between David Cameron and Michael Gove or David Cameron and Boris Johnson insulting each other, that just created headlines that were alienating and not about the subject that we really wanted to talk about and created the idea that this was a bunch of out-of-touch people fighting over the spoils of who could run the country, not about Europe itself. So I really don't buy the idea that if we disappeared into, a, a, frankly, a shit fight in the Conservative Party, that it would have actually uh, helped us. I think it probably would have made things a lot worse. So um, one of the things I just wondered, I just remember um, Channel 4, they did this this film with Benedict Cumberbatch and you sort of feature in it. I think there's a scene of you in the kitchen on, on the phone whilst 
serving spaghetti or whatever to the kids and <laughs> is that am I remembering that correctly and um, yes and then there's also a scene where I think you're on the on a platform tube platform and you see Dominic Cummings and you end up going for a pint how far from the truth is is that scene well the first one is true so um James Graham who wrote the drama based it um half on my book which is called Unleashing Demons and part of that book is very much about how do you try and do your normal domestic duties while in the middle of this crazy campaign and definitely trying to make sure that the kids were fed and looked after while trying to also sort out the latest riot that was going on was definitely part of it. The other part where Dominic Cummings and I go for a drink is is um, dramatic license and it was James's way of trying to bring it together at the end and have the two people that had been involved a lot in the campaigns talk to each other about what had happened um i felt that the scene was actually um very kind to me in the sense that it was basically dominic cummings saying to me look you thought you were in control uh and me saying back you won't be able to control it either um and i think that there is a lot of truth in that that politicians and strategists um, think that they can work very hard to control the outside environment but very often it just comes back and bites them. You've discussed tribalism already it's clearly a bugbear of yours what was your you know how, how did you try and overcome that when you're when you were you know director of comms like were that I'm assuming there are many occasions where you want to be able to speak to the opposition party obviously you were in coalition so that would have was it another interesting dynamic how how did you deal with that well i think quite often it's 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 hard because i think that actually so much of politics can be about short-term gain or about positioning yourself on the board and what's interesting i think sometimes is that there are some politics who politicians who are definitely in it because they want to change the world and make life better for their constituency or they've done there's something that they particularly care about and there are other politicians and no I'm not going to name them there are other politicians for whom it is just a big game Uh, and it's about how you can seek advantage and how you can pull the wool over somebody's eyes or how you can um, you can basically plot against somebody and make sure that you are seen to have advantage or knock a few points off them and that side of things is just prevalent all the time. It's just incredibly tedious to have to deal with, I think. Um, and you just need to be in a situation where sometimes you're calling it out, sometimes you're just pointing it out. And it sounds a bit pious, but it is it is just very tedious when you're trying to actually achieve things that, that mean something. I also think that one of the things about politics uh, um, is when you're in it is that there's also a kind of self-inflicted um, thick of it kind of culture where people end up thinking oh I could get a really good headline if I did that or I could just get advantage if I, if I did that um, you know I'd get a you know maybe a splash in a newspaper tomorrow and I would look great or a page lead and quite often you were saying to them well maybe not maybe you might get a splash but we'd be paying for it for months afterwards so I was actually thinking the other day it was the day of a, a reshuffle and a very senior cabinet minister suggested on the morning that we split the sports minister's role into two um, and that one of the sports ministers be David Beckham. And I remember looking at them and thinking, 
what? And they said, <laughs> yes, um, wouldn't it be great if David Beckham was put in the House of Lords and he became sports minister? And I remember just looking at them and saying, look, hang on a minute. David Beckham, we met a couple of times, very, very nice guy. I'm not sure he's cut out to be standing at the dispatch box in the House of Lords defending government policy on sports, which can, after all, be quite complicated. By the way, it's the morning of the reshuffle. Do you seriously want me to ring up David Beckham and try and get hold of him and say, hey, mate, do you fancy being sports minister for our government? This seems to me to be an entirely ridiculous thing. And Everybody would ridicule us, I suspect, if we did it. And even if it worked and we got glorious coverage for it, I suspect we would end up repenting at our leisure for many, many months to come. Um, and I'd been in the job a couple of years at that time and felt able to be robust enough to say we're absolutely not doing it and managed to kill it in a couple of minutes. But you really are in a situation sometimes where somebody is in all seriousness looking at you and saying on the morning of the reshuffle, let's make David Beckham sports minister. I love the optimism of whoever suggested this that Beckham would even want to do that. Well, optimism <laughs> is one word for it. Um, I think that there's a, there, there are a few other Polite. words for it yeah, as very, well. A, a very <laughs> polite way of putting it totally out of their mind yeah that is that is an extraordinary uh that's an extraordinary story and i've yeah i don't think i've never i've definitely never heard that before that's 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 amazing and so one of your jobs i think as well is because your your full title was director of communications and politics is that right yeah so i went in as director of communications and then was um given the title of director of politics and communications right and so as part of that, did you have to look after the special advisors across government or yeah, keep well, an so eye you, out? You did have to keep an eye out on special advisors. And I actually think one of the things that um, people sort of criticise Dominic Cummings for being controlling of special advisors. Um, I think one of the mistakes that our administration made was to be allowing of situations where there were people who were clearly running their own agendas uh, and we didn't come hard down hard on them enough. It allowed a sense that we were split and that there were problems and there were issues and that the government didn't necessarily agree with each other on things. And I that was a problem, I think. And what I don't think you need to be is in a position where you are, you know, micromanaging every detail. But having a clear sense of what is going on and a clear direction from the top is very important. Now, I'm not saying that we we didn't, but sometimes I think we allowed people to run their own agenda and it caused us problems a couple of times. You were never my boss. We didn't overlap in government. So um, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what you would have been like as a, as a boss reporting. I would have been lovely. <laughs> And I've also managed to escape Dominic coming. So, but uh, I definitely, I definitely hear what you're saying. Um, what what do you think does make a, a good special advisor though? And what 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 you know? How does how can government you know? How does government benefit from from a strong from a strong? Oh, well, I, I think I'm going to say something slightly controversial here. In that, I think that what's increasingly happened in governments, actually going back over the last 30 years, is that there has been a gradual centralisation of um, 
things that go on in government. And increasingly, it's been pulled to the centre. And I think that David Cameron and George Osborne um, working together as a partnership um, was was a good way of doing that. I think that um, increasingly anybody who gets near number 10 understands that you need an engine at the heart that is quite centralised. And the reason for that is in an era of digital communications where the next deadline is the time it takes somebody to put out a tweet, there's very few of you who are running things and an awful lot of other people who have the capability to do something intentional or unintentionally that really knock things over and cause problems. So unless you have a tight grip at the centre, um, you can be in real trouble and real problems. And I think increasingly a lot of the power has been sucked away from certain um, government departments and towards the centre. And I think that that may be undesirable in some ways, but I think it's an inevitable consequence of the fact that, you know, things can really run away with you and there's very few of you at the centre and lots of other people outside, that, if, if that makes sense. And so the natural thing is to want to is exert as much control as possible. Well, I always, I can't help thinking that if you if you want that strong network, and obviously the centre is crucial, but you also really are going to rely on a very strong network and of spas around you and obviously like a strong relationship and... Um, so I didn't answer your question. I do think a, I do think a good special advisor is signed up to what the government agenda is and is doing what the strategy of the government is and following through on it. I think a bad special advisor has got uh, their eye on their minister's next promotion and um, is thinking about how do I make sure. Uh, that they get as much credit as possible or manoeuvre themselves into a position that works because actually when they're doing that, they're not really thinking about how are we making better things better for the people who elected us. Speaking as a true number 10 employee. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you must have experienced some absolutely crazy things uh, whilst in number 10. Can you please share some of your most crazy or absurd anecdotes so we had been to invited to the white house um and it was an extraordinary experience um meeting uh, president obama and being allowed to fly on air force one and i remember being on air force one and just this, this weird protocol where you're only allowed to go stay where you are or go back on the plane unless you're invited forwards and what that means is that just behind um, President Obama's quarters we were sort of tucked in there and uh, we were invited in and he took a photograph of us and David Cameron was feeling a bit tired and he said well why don't you have a, a, a nap in um, my bed which is actually in the nose cone of the 747 and while this was all going on, I noticed that they had these um, presidential M&Ms, which on one side had the presidential seal, and on the other hand side had a signature of Barack Obama. That is so around, American. And I, Yeah, exactly. And, but I went around picking up some of these to give as gifts to people. And uh, I remember the stewardess saying to me, sir, we will be giving you a goodie bag. You don't need to take all of these things. But anyway, we'd had this amazing visit and... Um, 
we'd seen Mumford and Sons had played at, um, and John Legend had played at a dinner that, that, that Obama had thrown for David Cameron, an extraordinary experience. And the next day we were in New York and I'd had a rare couple of hours off and I had a friend who was working in Rockefeller Plaza for NBC and I nipped across there quickly to go and see, see them. And I came down realizing I was going to be late for the convoy and there was complete gridlock in New York City and I didn't have much money on me and there were no cabs. And suddenly this guy pulled up in a rickshaw and he said, where do you need to go, buddy? And I said, look, I need to get right away across town and I'm afraid I've got about $8 in my pocket. And he just looked at me and went, get in, which I realized given the price they charge was amazing. And um, he was weaving in and out of the traffic and I looked to my left and I could see Times Square. And I was thinking, how amazing is this? You know, you know, aren't we cool? We've had this amazing trip. It's a huge success. And then when I was ringing people, texting people, telling about it. And then my phone went and it was um, the Guardian who was saying, um, is, is the Chancellor going to cut the top rate of tax from 50p to 40p in next week's budget? And suddenly I was like, oh no, I know that the top rate of tax is going to be cut to 45p and we can't confirm or deny anything that's happening in the budget, but they've got it wrong. But I was able to guide them that that's not true. And I was thinking, phew. Then um, my phone went a couple of minutes later and it was actually the FT who'd got it right this time and they'd got 45p and I like, no comment. And I remember like just sitting in this rickshaw feeling like the world... We'd been creeping to the top of a roller coaster and then just plummeting downwards and realizing we were in trouble because basically the entirety of the budget had been leaked. Um, and there was absolutely chaos. It was the Lib Dems that had leaked it. And there was absolutely chaos for months after that. Had they purposely um, it, leaked it? Yes, they had. And it was wow. um, because they feared that actually it was impossible for them to get any credit on the day. I mean, that was so a very naive to... question of me, but you never know because there's this one story where a Conservative meant to send it to Matt Hancock and sent it to this other MP called Matt something who was yes. Smith MP no, it in wasn't scandal, that. and he, a... he didn't even do anything with it, which is his, his funny story. But no, yeah. no, this is basically <laughs> journalists had been systematically briefed right. and like run and because they were ringing up and they got it wrong first time and then the next one who was working in cahoots had got it got it right. Um, but what that then became was known as the Omni Shambles budget. And I remember like months of being asked questions about, you know, taxes on static caravans and pasty taxes and that kind of thing. And I remember one um, day it got so bad that we were having to U-turn all over the place. And George Osborne coming into number 10 and saying to me, you've got to do something. I can't leave the treasury without a guy dressed as Marie Antoinette shouting, let them eat pasties at me. Um, and it really had got completely out of control <laughs> and was a complete mess. And I think in those circumstances, you do start thinking that I am living in some kind of weird parallel universe where um, the thick of it is not a comedy programme, but actually reality. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, um, you would have been exposed to some really interesting uh, meetings of foreign dignitaries. You mentioned, you know, being on Air Force One and seeing President Obama. What were your other takeaways? It's like, you know, what, what, you know, without obviously revealing the stuff you can't reveal, but what, what goes on when these people meet? Incredible privilege. I remember like being David Cameron having a very sore back during one 
EU summit, which was just ahead of the renegotiation in terms of Britain's role in the EU. And we'd been waiting for the Germans to do a bilateral. And suddenly somebody popped their head round the door and said that Angela Merkel's coming. And David Cameron had been lying on the floor to sort his um, back out. And I remember having to help him to his feet because and he had a very painful back and then picking up loads of bags of, um, you know, empty Haribo bags and cups of tea trying to tidy up in the 45 seconds between being told and um, Angela Merkel coming in the room. Another one was flying into Nypiador, which is the city that the um, Burmese generals had built rather than Rangoon, and just flying into this airport, which had no other planes in it at all. It was a massive international airport, but there were no other planes there. And going along this 16-lane highway towards um, there to meet to a meeting with the generals in this um, building that was sort of the size of a small planet. I remember going into this room that was like a, an aircraft hangar, which had gold carpets and gold walls, but no windows. And there was a meeting that was very, very stilted with David Cameron and the lead general at the top talking to each other on microphones and aides on either side lined up, you know, a good sort of 20 metres apart from each other because we were in such a large room. And then suddenly all the lights went out. And I remember the security guards behind us just like, twitching and starting to get very nervous. And because there were no windows, it was completely pitch black and the microphones went off. And you could hear this stilted conversation still going on in the distance as they were pretending nothing had happened. And then the lights went back on and then the lights went off and then they went back on again and then they went off. And it was just an incredibly strange situation where clearly the generator wasn't working and I, and I imagined this guy with a gun being held to his head, being told to fix it fast. Um, but, but it was fixed. And then we were given a lunch and I was sitting next to um, the tourism minister. Um, and, I, and I said, oh, and, and what did you do before you were a tourism minister? And he said, oh, you know, I was a general and thinking, of course you were. Um, and we were given food that they thought was European. Um, but actually was rather bizarre. So we had garlic soup, which was, as far as I could work out, literally lots, dozens and dozens of garlic <laughs> bolts that had been liquefied <laughs> and eating that. And so very, very strange moments like that. Or visiting the Chinese and um, they're eight hours ahead of us. And we, were, we flew straight in and went to a, what they called a banquet at lunchtime where there were, um, there were um, I think there were eight, or 10 courses of food like tree fungus um, and liquidized pumpkin and sea creatures that you couldn't quite recognize and then going to a dinner in that evening with President Xi and there were 14 courses and again quite odd food and by the end of that having eaten 22 courses by what was one o'clock in the afternoon UK time and feeling heartily sick so I mean, extraordinary experiences when you think about it and extraordinary opportunities to do and see stuff that most people don't get a chance to. And I think that that's the most important thing. It was an extraordinary privilege. Every day I walked up the road to that famous black door and thinking, this is extraordinary. I get to go in here most days or fly around the world and see and hear world leaders. And, and it's an extraordinary privilege and opportunity. Mm, yeah, totally, totally. And what, what object have you picked um, 
to you know what and this is by far the hardest um and often most interesting insight but yeah what what object has impacted your thinking well you're right it's incredibly hard in terms of you know thinking something through and then i remembered my father showing me his father's george medal which is the highest peacetime honor anybody can be given being told the story of the grandfather i had never met because he was he died in the year before i was born but he had been a PC um, in the 1950s and he had, um, he had been to a fire at Barnes Railway Station. And it's a very famous incident, actually, I haven't realised, but the flames were 100 feet high and he'd gone into the carriage and he'd rescued three people. And I remember being told the story of how the driver who'd had his arm amputated um, had come to see him afterwards and saying to my grandfather, I wish you'd never um, rescued me because my life without my arm and everything in the burns are just too much. And him being very upset by that because he would risked his life to do that. And then 13 years later, he died in the streets of London. I think he had a heart attack and, and died. And as I say, it was the year before I was born in 1969. And I remember just hearing about this person I'd never met and seeing this medal that he'd got, which was an incredible honour, and thinking that actually it was what an extraordinary guy. He was an ordinary person doing an extraordinary job, who'd risked his life. And I remember thinking, like, there are lots of people like that who would, who are ordinary people who do extraordinary things, um, and they keep their side of the bargain. And actually, in terms of politics, it's up to the politicians to remember those people at all times and remember what they're doing it for and why they're there. So I think that, you know, I do feel proud of the grandfather I never met and the George Medal he won and the sacrifice he made, but also he's a reminder of, an, you know, a normal guy who did an extraordinary thing and politicians owe those people a lot, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Final, final section is the quick fire questions. I'm sure there are many, but which minister kept you up at night the most? Oh, yeah, I mean, where do I even start? I mean, um, I think Ian Duncan Smith kept me up at night a lot, particularly towards the referendum campaign and the build up to him resigning. And I remember the Friday night when he resigned and running into Downing Street and then we watching the 10 o'clock news and... David Cameron looking at me and saying, if you don't like blood sports, look away now. That was quite a moment um, when when he resigned. I think George Osborne did. I'm a big fan of George and like him very much, but he often um, had lots of plans and ideas that sometimes were great and sometimes were got us into scrapes. Um, so quite a few <laughs> different ones. And um, which Labour politician do you respect the most? I respect quite a lot of the uh, Labour politicians. I remember um, Dan Jarvis, I thought, was a very, very decent guy when we were working in in Number 10. I remember one very, very late night um, coming out of the Commons and there'd been a very difficult vote and talking to him and it was clear how much he cared and it was clear how much we cared and seeing that. And, of course, that's the truth, I think, about most politicians. They just come at things from a different angle and are human beings and want to do something decent and good. So, that you know, there were lots of good Labour politicians. I remember meeting lots of people say this, but Tessa Jowell was clearly an extraordinary human being. I remember meeting her in a tracksuit at the 
London Olympics and she'd been in the, the, the village and was being loved by the, the villagers and thinking that she was an extraordinary person too. And um, considering how closely you worked with the Lib Dems, um, I'd actually be curious to know what the answer is for Lib Dem politicians, like who, who really impressed you? Yeah, I thought Nick Clegg was a genuinely impressive guy. There were times where he came in the room and it was clear that he was very serious about making this work and wanted it to be an opportunity to show that politicians could work together. So I thought he and, um, you know, some of his advisors like Lena Peach and Johnny Oates were, and Sean Kemp were great people and we got on very well and worked together very closely. And, you know, they, they, they were decent people. Sometimes I felt, I think that each political party in a way has its own um, sins that are attached to it. And sometimes it was clear to me that a lot of the people that they were working with actually didn't really like the idea of being in power, um, that a lot of their supporters quite liked the idea of being in opposition and constant critics and didn't really like it when they were being criticised. And I think that made their lives very hard when they were trying to run things. My final question, Craig, is what is the best advice you've ever received? What is the best advice I've ever received? Don't go into politics, um, some people say. Um, <laughs> yeah. What? Uh, I mean, I think probably, I was thinking about this the other day and I remember like my old boss at the BBC, Peter Horrocks, and I was in a bit of a flap about something going on and there was a big problem and saying, oh, this, you know, this is a problem because of this and this and this. And he just said, Craig, there's always some shit going on. <laughs> and I said, and I thought about it. And he said, he's right there's always some chaotic situation or some problem. And actually that's quite often the norm and just take a breath and deal with it. So I think that that was extremely good advice to anybody who's in a stressful or high pressure job. You know, there's always some shit going on. Yeah. Or maybe the phrase is just let shit go. Let shit go. Um, I think that's good. I'm I'm allowed to say shit on your podcast, which is I've I said think it a few so. Times. I doubt we're going to get into huge trouble. <laughs> but if Very there are any good. complaints, I'm sure I'll hear it. But Craig, thank you, you can so put much. Parental advisory on it. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much for joining. That was really interesting. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you have any requests for speakers or any specific questions you want me to ask you can email me on podcast at bigtent.org.uk or get in touch via Twitter. I'm at Laura Round. And if you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review. Thank you very much. Bye.